0: Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Stephen Chen. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Alana Rosman, who is a dermatologist and dermatopathologist practicing at WashU, Washington University in St. Louis. Alana is also the program director there, and from personal experience, I can tell you she is so passionate and so involved with the Association of Professors of Dermatology and specifically looking at how our field is accepting, evaluating new residents into our programs and specifically thinking about how we might be able to reform and change and more importantly, improve the process for our dermatology applicants. So I'm so thrilled to be joined by Dr. Alana Rosman. Alana, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen, for having me.
0: So let's dive right in because there's so much that we could talk about and I want to talk about and the powers that be tell me I can't spend three hours with you here. So <laughs> I think just to start us off, the audience for Dialogues in Dermatology is pretty broad. We have academicians, we have folks in private practice, group practice, and we also have Durham residents and even perhaps some medical students who are interested in dermatology. So if you could just kind of lay the groundwork for us. What are the major issues that are facing dermatology applicants today as they apply to our specialty?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think the application process has changed a lot since many of our listeners have applied. The major challenge is that it's incredibly competitive, and it's been increasingly more competitive over time. And each year there are more and more students applying to dermatology, while our positions, the number of positions that are available, remain fairly stable. So the match rate keeps going down slightly each year because of that. And until we have a greater supply of positions or the demand goes down, that will continue to occur. It's harder and harder then for applicants to distinguish themselves, particularly given a lot of the changes in medical education. A lot of schools have eliminated honor societies like Alpha Omega, Alpha AOA, which we're used to. A lot of schools have eliminated grades as well as class ranking. Um, And we know that step one is going towards a pass fail scoring system or reporting system. I should say this actually already happened. So next cycle, next two Mm -hmm. cycles, we will start to see that. So it's becoming more difficult for the applicants to understand how they can highlight who they are and kind of show what they will contribute to a program.
0: I imagine from an applicant's perspective, all of that certainly makes it much harder to distinguish oneself compared to the crowd. But if it's okay, let me shine the light in the other direction. As a program director, as you're reviewing applications, what are the major issues that are facing you as you read through the hundreds of applications that you're receiving for your program?
1: Yeah. So both sides, I think, are incredibly challenging right now. So as the field becomes more competitive, applicants are applying to more and more programs. So each applicant is applying to 60 to 80, if not more. We're actually seeing that they're tending to apply to even more than 80 programs. So on the program side, we're seeing massive numbers of applications. Programs are getting 500, 600, 700 applications for anywhere from two to seven or eight positions. So there's a huge number of applications The applications are starting to look a lot more similar because applicants feel like they all have to publish a bunch of papers, do a bunch of volunteer experiences, work in dermatology clinics. And so you're starting to see the same activities on each application, and it becomes really hard to determine, A, if an applicant is truly interested in your program, and B, What is unique about that applicant? How are they going to contribute to your program and to the field? What are their true interests? And all of that makes a really chaotic and almost random feeling application and selection process.
0: That certainly sounds daunting. As someone who reviews applications for my own program, I can tell you I feel very similarly to you in terms of differentiating between applicants. And I I think We all probably have the same thought, which is that all of these applicants are amazing and that we could probably pick a core group, not a core group, but just a random group of applicants to interview and still end up with an amazing class of residents. And so it's very, very difficult to figure out who's really interested in your geographic region, who's really interested in training in your program. So getting at that. I know that you've led some of the innovations that have come out of the APD in terms of trying to figure out that problem or trying to sort through that problem, trying to figure out who exactly is interested in your program. And that might come in the form of preference signaling or tokens and come in the form of supplemental applications for our listeners who haven't really thought about applications in a long time. Could you explain just kind of a high level? What exactly is all of that and how has that changed in the last year?
1: Yeah, absolutely. What's interesting is that ERAS, so that's the Electronic Residency Application Service, that is a system where applicants apply and where program directors review applications, has not really changed substantially in decades. So what ERAS did this year is they created a pilot program called the Supplemental ERAS Application that was designed to get a little bit more streamlined information and more unique information from applicants so that they could highlight their experiences and attributes in a more meaningful way for programs. This year, dermatology, internal medicine, and general surgery were the three specialties that were chosen as part of this pilot. And so we were really fortunate to be a part of this. We were able to provide a lot of feedback in designing the supplemental application tool and in evaluating it over time. So there were four main sections. The first section is past experiences. That allowed applicants to choose up to five experiences or activities that were most meaningful to them and to explain why in a very brief short answer. They also were able to discuss an impactful life experience that impacted their journey through medicine and into residency. That could include hardships that they faced or other issues that have come up for them. The second section included geographic preferences, where applicants could choose up to three geographic regions where they preferred to be for residency, or they could say no preference. There also was a third section for program preferences, so that allowed applicants to choose up to three residency programs that are their top programs to signal, that's called this preference signal or token, to those programs their genuine interest. And there was a fourth section that was research only that talked through sort of work settings and work preferences. That is for AAMC to be looking at that section to see if it's meaningful or useful over time, but programs did not have access to that data. Importantly, the applicant's completed this supplemental tool separately from their traditional ERAS application, and programs who participated were able to look at that data while they were viewing. We had almost complete full participation from dermatology. About 90% of the dermatology residency programs participated, and about 90% of our dermatology applicants did submit one of these supplemental applications.
0: I think that theoretically getting more information, obviously, is wonderful, but it's always a balance, right? And it's always, to be totally honest, from an applicant's perspective, kind of a game because I, as someone who does a lot of mentoring for medical students, there's a lot of stress about, do I preference signal? to a program that I think I have a realistic shot at, or do I preference signal to my dream program that I truly want to go to, knowing that everyone else might be preference signaling that program. I'm just curious, as I'm sure someone who also advises a lot of medical students at your institution, how did you approach counseling or students about how to use a supplemental application, how to do preference signaling? I think everyone was kind of learning in the same kind of timeframe. So I'm just curious what you did.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Unfortunately, it was a bit of a compressed timeline this year, which will be improved for this next cycle. And definitely, students were stressed out by this. Applicants were wondering how to complete it. The nice thing about it is that they complete it once and it goes to all programs. So they can't tailor it to specific programs. I would say that's nice for the programs because we know it's actually their genuine information. <laughs> Maybe not as nice for the applicants, but it did lead to a lot of questions about even for the five most meaningful activities, should I? show that I'm well-rounded and include a research aspect, a service aspect, a clinical aspect, or should I focus on things that are really meaningful to me? I always counseled my students and I do mentor a lot of students at my own institution and across other institutions. I always advise them to be honest and to be true to what is meaningful to them. It doesn't help them to try to game the system because I don't actually think there is a way to game it mm-hmm. because of the volume of applications, the volume of information. I always think it's better to be honest with what's important to you. So I did tell them to actually signal their true top three programs. And I should note, the signal did not guarantee an interview, right? All it did is that it let a program know this person is genuinely interested out of the potentially 100 programs they applied to, you are one of the three that they are really excited about. And this was supposed to be used only in the application review process, not for ranking. And I think it was really helpful. There's pluses and minuses to all of that, but I always did advise, focus on what's important to you. When we looked at the data from the preference signals, there were some programs who received over 50 signals, potentially close to 100 signals for a few programs. If you signaled one of those programs, and you, you know, weren't that interested, you kind of felt like it was a dream program, so you might as well try it, you probably weren't going to do well in that setting. A lot of programs only received 15 to 20 signals. And in that setting, the signal may actually be more meaningful at a program that received fewer. So I do think that sending it to a dream or reach program may not be particularly helpful for applicants.
0: Right. And I think, you know, just to make it Obviously stated for our listeners is that this is the first time this was done. This was a pilot and things will likely change again in the future. And this was only piloted by three specialties. So it'll be really interesting to see with more experience how this goes in the future. I don't know if you have any insight into how it might look for the future, future iterations.
1: Yeah. So we are starting our next cycle. The great thing about the next iteration is that we have many more specialties participating. They have not released the list yet from AAMC, but there are more than 12 specialties participating. So we will see a lot more information coming out a lot sooner. We also have the value of the experience we've had already and data from surveys that were given to program directors, applicants, and advisors. So we have more information on how to advise, how to counsel, which will make the process more seamless seamless moving forward. WAMC is working on honing the application itself and maybe removing a few of the questions so that it is a shorter application and it is more focused to what programs and applicants want to see on there. They also will be combining all of this data into the ARIS system. So previously, the supplemental application was viewed through a separate dashboard. So you had to log into that separately, which led to some access issues and maybe affected the usability of it. This year, all of the data will be viewable within the main era system so it'll be easier for faculty and program directors to review the data and use it.
0: I'm just going to take a brief second and say how daunting it sounds that we haven't, at least as, as of recording this podcast, We haven't yet even figured out who's coming into our residencies. The match list hasn't come out and we're already thinking about the future cycle, which is (laughs) kind of highlights how never ending this, this whole thing really is. I think one thing that's been really obvious is that with this change in how applicants are kind of scrambling to distinguish themselves and as a program, how we're trying to distinguish our applicants, one thing that's come up a lot is holistic review. And how are we able to review our applicants without really just making everything about numbers and screening applications out based on formerly step one in the future? step two scores, potentially. I'm just curious, how do you approach holistic review? I think both our institutions use holistic review, which I think is great for applicants, but I imagine it must be pretty difficult for programs that have fewer faculty, just less manpower to get through all these applications, especially if they're reaching the 600, 700s in volume. Do you have any advice for perhaps smaller programs or just advice in general for holistic review?
1: Yeah. Holistic review has been a big topic of discussion among applicants and programs across specialties for the past several years. And holistic review sometimes I think is misinterpreted. So yes, it's the idea that the whole applicant is being taken into consideration and you're looking at more than just metrics. You're looking at what their experiences are, who they are, what their attributes are. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are reading from front to back. Mm -hmm. Obviously, on uh, it's not really on paper anymore, but we'll just say from back, <laughs> the application in whole for every single applicant, because honestly, that is virtually impossible for most programs. And even if it were possible, a lot of these, they blend together to a certain extent, and it can be very difficult if you read 10 applications in full in a row you're going to have a different experience for the first one than the 10th one, Mm -hmm. honestly, right? And so how do you manage this in a more effective and also efficient manner that still preserves holistic review? Part of it is as a program, you have to decide what's important to you. Are there certain experiences that are important to you? You know, if you're heavy, we really research heavy program and you want research experience. Are you a very service oriented program and you want service experience? So my holistic review is going to look different from your holistic review Mm -hmm. potentially. So figuring out what's important to your program is the first step. After that, there are ways that you can streamline it. What I loved about the supplemental application is that when a applicant tells you these are the five activities or experiences that are most meaningful to me, that allows you to get that information very quickly as opposed to looking through their list of experiences and activities in the traditional ERAS application which is numbering you know, 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 experiences, (laughs) that number gets higher every year. And it's very hard when you're looking at that exhaustive list to determine what was actually important to that applicant. Oh, was this volunteer experience important or was this research experience important? I don't know. It's all given the same weight in the current system. So for me, using those five most meaningful activities was sort of my first step in evaluating all of our applicants. And it allowed me to get a sense of who they are based on what they're telling me, not from what someone else is telling me or from a step score or some other metric like that. And so that was sort of my first step in our holistic review which allowed us to really get to know all of the applicants in a quicker way and decide which applicants we felt would be a better fit for our program and then review all of those applications in much more depth once we did kind of an initial review of the meaningful activities.
0: Got it. That, I think that's great advice. And again, just to reiterate the point that that might be different for another program based okay. on, yeah, based on yeah. what the program's focus might be.
1: Absolutely. But I think for people, for programs with fewer faculty members reviewing, that's a very helpful tool. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would stress is creating a rubric that is standardized that your reviewers use is really helpful. And that's where you really define what's important to you. So, you know, are the academic metrics important and they're going to be 30% or 40% or are they 10% or are you not looking at them at all? Is a number of publications or hours spent doing different activities, what is important to you and how are you gonna build that into your scoring rubric? And that helps standardize things across your reviewers so that you know you are all looking for and at the same things.
0: Great, thank you for sharing the insight. I think that certainly sounds like hopefully will help a program director or an associate program director out there in the future. If it's okay, I wanna move on. And if it's all right, talk a little bit about some controversial, maybe controversial topics out there right now. One you've already brought up, which is step one, going pass fail. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is it kind of a mixed bag? And then the other thing I was hoping to throw in there is the kind of always talked about research year before applying in dermatology. So many of our applicants do it, understandably, because they obviously have a very mentored experience. They have someone in their camp to write them a strong letter, but naturally, it certainly kind of sets up this equity issue in terms of people who can take a research year versus people who can't. And so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on both of those, the research year and step one being pass-fail.
1: Yeah, I think they are interconnected, honestly. Step one has a lot of issues. There's no correlation between step one scores and success as a resident or success as a physician or clinical skills or communication skills. So what is it being used for? It's supposed to be a licensing exam that should be pass-fail, but has become this tool for, for application review. There are equity issues with step one as well. There's racial bias in step scores. It's probably really correlated with resources, how well you do on step one. So I think we know that there's a lot of issues with step one. And I think for the medical education standpoint as well, students are essentially starting their step one review on day one of medical school and spending so much energy and person hours on step one studying that It really is potentially at the expense of other activities, other learning, not only learning in medical school, but also extracurricular activities where they are contributing to the field or contributing to their community. So we know those issues. So overall, I think it's a positive move that step one is going to pass fail. However, it's a mixed bag in that there are a lot of repercussions of this. We are now losing what many had considered an objective measure for application review. Now, granted, it wasn't really objective, and I think there's plenty of data to show that, but it was still being used in that way, used as a filter. And I don't think step one should be used as a filter. However, given everything we've discussed, when you're seeing increasing numbers of applications and having a much more difficult time trying to figure out who to interview, it has been a useful tool, even if maybe a misplaced useful tool. And then we're also seeing fewer grades out there, fewer class ranks, fewer honor society nominations, as I mentioned before. so you're losing a lot of these academic metrics you had previously to review. So what's going to happen as a sequela of that? Well, I imagine that a lot of people are going to start wanting to use step two as a replacement for step one. Step two maybe is slightly better in that there is some correlation with some clinical skills and communication based on some papers, still a bit fuzzy out there, if that really is meaningful. There likely are still some racial biases as well with step two. So is replacing step one with step two the best move forward? Maybe, maybe not. And I think that will differ by specialty and differ by program. The other issue I see is this applications arm race that a lot of people call this, okay, where applicants feel like they have to do more and more each year. That's where we see increasing numbers of volunteer activities, publications, research experiences, because they all feel like they're not going to match unless they do more and more and more. Research year is one of those elements. More and more people taking an extra year to do research. Now there are very valid reasons to do that. If you are, interested in research. And you may want to incorporate that into your career and want more exposure to that. If you have a very specific niche that you're interested in studying clinically and or scientifically, and you wanna get more exposure to that with an expert. If you are at a program that does not have a dermatology residency and you have very few dermatology mentors, then a research year may make sense as well so that you can get more exposure to the field and to people in the field. However, as you mentioned, Stephen, this is really important. A lot of research years are unfunded, a lot. (laughs) We don't have full numbers here, but a lot of, probably about half are unfunded. And so who's able to do that? Even if it is funded, it's an opportunity cost for a year of a salary later on, right? So there are a lot of downsides financially for students to take a research year. And there may be people who are more able to do that than others. Are we creating more inequity? Are we also having applicants kind of spin their wheels just to get publications out when we don't even know how meaningful that is? If someone is not interested in research and really wants to be an amazing clinician and wants to focus on patient care, is there value for them doing a research year? Yes, it's valuable for every medical student to understand research and be able to read papers and be able to think critically. But doing a research year is well beyond that and sometimes feels like it is just for matching and just to create sort of more of this publication number that may or may not be useful for anyone, honestly.
0: Yeah, it's a sticky subject for sure. And I think it's one that you and I often bat around on Twitter. And so, you know, (laughs) I think we both of us kind of see that often. I certainly don't expect there to be a right answer because it's so complicated, but I think it's really important for all of us in the community to be thinking about how what we're looking for, what we're expecting from our applicants might be furthering some issues in our own ranks in terms of diversity, in terms of equity. And so in that sense, that kind of leads me to my next question, which is diversity in dermatology. You know, this has obviously been a huge push by the Academy for the last few years now. And how do you kind of see the application process panning out in terms of trying to help with the diversity issue? Is there anything we can be doing to kind of further along our efforts to improve diversity in our ranks for the future of our specialty?
1: Yeah, I think there's a few ways to do that. Certainly part of my passion for reforming the application process stems from, from this idea that certain things that we do in the application process are exacerbating the diversity issue as opposed to helping it and really making our field more inclusive. So I do want to see a process that is more equitable and sustainable moving forward for everyone. And that doesn't mean only racial and ethnic diversity, although that's a major piece of it, but also looking at applicants who are first-generation college students who come from a lower socioeconomic background, who come from a rural background, those sort of people that we don't see going to dermatology as often. Moving towards holistic review, moving towards a system where applicants can highlight those unique attributes through important experiences that they've had, through meaningful life experiences that may discuss some of the hardships or other inequities they have faced in the past. I think those are really helpful steps moving towards a more equitable application process. But obviously, we need to address some of these other issues. How important are publications? How important is a research year? Because that may be counterproductive to what we are discussing and how we are trying to improve diversity in the field. I think we also need to look at how we're designing our dermatology residency education and curricula, how we are incorporating service learning and community engagement. There are a lot of people who maybe would be interested in dermatology, but don't see dermatology as a forum to interact and engage with a community there may be differing perspectives of dermatology from applicants and students who don't know that much about dermatology. Many of those applicants have not had much exposure to dermatology. So if what they see is from social media or movies or other popular sources, they may not understand the full breadth of what dermatology does and they may not be as attracted to it. I think we have to really be thinking about our engagement with the community. There are lots of ways to do that. Obviously, there are programs developed looking at access to care issues, looking at skin of color, looking at LGBTQ dermatology as well. So how are we reaching out to vulnerable populations and populations that have been historically marginalized? The more we do that and the more we can talk about that, I think there are students who will be really excited to participate in those activities and programs can do that themselves. They can look at community clinics, they can look at specialty clinics that may focus on some of these important aspects. We also need to really be thinking about the pathway or pipeline. People use either pipeline or pathway programs. Mm -hmm. How do we encourage people who maybe weren't interested and weren't necessarily interested in medicine or science to go into medicine? How do we then encourage those people to go into dermatology when many of them might go into primary care because that's what they know and that's how they feel they can serve their community because there are so many ways in which. Applicants and students of color, applicants and students who identify as a sexual gender minority, applicants or students who come from different backgrounds can really contribute to our field to really enrich dermatology as a whole. And we should be talking about that so they know that we want them and that they're welcome and that we know how much they're going to contribute to dermatology moving forward.
0: Absolutely. I think about that all the time because that was my own experience in medical school. I didn't know what dermatology was. I didn't know what type of medicine dermatology really, what type of medicine was practiced in the field of dermatology. Speaking as a reformed interventional cardiologist who did dermatology in July of my fourth year and realized how much I loved it. I do think that there's a lot to be said about early exposure, about really helping potential applicants understand the wide breadth of the specialty, including serving the underserved, the under-resourced, however that might be, to entice more people to join our ranks. We are coming towards the end of our time, so I wanted to ask you one last question, which may be kind of a dangerous one to ask you, but let's say that you could just scrap the whole system that we have right now, and you could build one from scratch, what would that look like? How might you conceive of that? What's your kind of dream scenario for future dermatology applicants?
1: That's a great question. I think it honestly starts in undergraduate medical education with first year of medical school. My major concern with medical education right now, which a lot of people have as well, is that there's such a focus on specialty choice and the residency application process that students enter medical school and even before medical school. I get messages from undergraduates sometimes asking about, if I want to go into dermatology, they're not even in med school yet, right? What should I be doing? What medical school should I go to so that I can be a more successful dermatology applicant? So we need to back up from this and make sure that people understand that specialty choice is important, but it's not the end goal of being a physician. There is so much about being a physician that is beyond your specialty choice, right? I know, Steven, you love dermatology. I love dermatology, (laughs) but we do other things, Right. right? You attend on the medicine floors. I mean, you're also, you know, med derm. I do dermatopathology, but even beyond specialty, we both teach. We love to interact with students. We love to teach students and residents. We love to interact with colleagues. We like to write. There are so many things that you can do in medicine that are beyond your specialty choice. So having more career exploration early on in medical school that focuses on what are the aspects of a medical career that you are interested in advocacy, education, research, clinical care, clinical trials, I think that would help people sort of take the focus a little bit away from specialty choice and take that pressure off. So students don't feel like from day one, they have to choose a specialty and then do everything related to that specialty. Mm -hmm. I would like to see students have the freedom to explore the things that are interesting to them and then choose their specialty choice as we used to do several years ago in third or fourth year, as opposed to doing it in the beginning of first year. I do think that would transform medical education and also transform the way that applicants approach the application process, because then when we see their applications, they will have invested in the things that are important to them, not in the things that they think they need to match into our specialty. In terms of the application process, I think then you do streamline it. I would love to just have only essentially the supplemental application so it essentially looks like a bio sketch where applicants are telling us what are their three to five most meaningful activities their three to five most meaningful publications perhaps and some short answer questions that are a bit more defined as opposed to a broad personal statement which is really helpful for some applicants there are some amazing personal statements that really give you insight into an applicant and there are a lot that are that feel a bit generic because applicants don't exactly know how to highlight themselves and they don't want to risk being filtered out or not being interviewed somewhere if they take what they think is a risk. So I would like to free them up from that. So a very streamlined application, more like a biosketch, I think we need some sort of application cap system where applicants can only apply to a certain number of programs in their specialty so we know their true interest and they can also show us their true interest. As part of that, we need to be more transparent as programs about what our program is about, what we are looking for, and what kind of applicant we think would be a good fit for us.
0: Amazing. Alana, I just want to take a second and thank you again for joining us for another episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. And of course, a huge thank you to our listeners for tuning in today for this medical education related podcast episode. Before we break, Alana, any last words, any last thoughts that you wanted to share with our
1: listeners? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I just wanted to say this has been such a team effort. Our Association of Professors of Dermatology Residency Program Director section is made up of amazing program directors and educators across the country, and they are all very invested in improving this process. So I have a lot of hope for the future. And that, of course, includes you, Steven, who has been a very <laughs> active member as well. So thank you so much.
0: Great. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks again, Alana. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your editor-in-chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.